0: That I should do the story uh, of Genesis 34, the story of Dinah. And being someone who likes a challenge, I began to study this text and decided I would do it. Uh, let me tell you, first of all, this is the most, the most difficult narrative that I've ever preached on. The story, you'll see, it's, it's awful, it's hideous, it's gruesome. There's no winners in the story. There's no heroes in the story. There's nobody you'd want to emulate this is the kind of story that if you read um if you read bible stories uh to your kids at bedtime most of us would be inclined to skip over this story central to the story are the themes of sexual assault broken family dynamics um rejection negligent parenting violence betrayal deception murder and injustice would you turn with me to genesis chapter 34 and let's go to our text I want to read this text for you um, and then we'll we'll pray and then uh, we'll get into the text Genesis chapter 34 I'll read the whole thing it's um it's not a terribly long thing but I want you to pay attention to this story all right it says that it says in Genesis chapter 34 if you're using a few Bible uh, it's on page 28 and the Word of God says to us that, that now Dinah the daughter of Leah whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, and he lay with her, and he humiliated her, and his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke and, and he spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter, Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us. And the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her um, and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great bride price and gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Only... Give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem, his father, Hamor, deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition we will agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. And then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take our daughters. We will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, all their beasts be ours? Oh, only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Simeon and Levi, his brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males." They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, um, my numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? How many are uncomfortable hearing that story in the good book? That should make us uncomfortable. Let's, let's pray, and then we'll get into this text. Our gracious God, um, thank you for your word. Thank you that there are times when it makes us uncomfortable. Um, I ask that in this text, you would reveal to us what you are like, what your grace is like. Point us to Jesus Christ from this text. I pray that, um, that you would, um, despite the, my nervousness and the weight of this topic, that you would help me to preach this with great accuracy, but also with great um, compassion and empathy. And I ask all this in Christ's name, amen. I want to give you a few reminders before we get into this teaching. First of all, this story is true. It really did happen. It's not just a creative analogy with the mysterious meaning, but it really happened. And that's worth noting because so many sources that I read about the story, whether Jewish or Christian, were quick to find applicable analogies of the story without dealing with the harsh and brutal realities that are contained in it. This really did happen. This story is true. Secondly, the story is part of the inspired word of God. It is as much the word of God as the book of Romans, as the Sermon on the Mount, or the story of the birth of Jesus in the town of Bethlehem. And therefore it is part of the record that god has given to us that we might know him even uncomfortable parts of the bible are worth studying all scripture is breathed out by god and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction and for instruction in righteousness by way of context i want to remind you where the story is in biblical history you may remember that jacob leaves his parents isaac and rebecca he goes to live with his uncle his uncle's name is laban Uh, he wants to marry his daughter rachel but his his uncle tricks him, he gives him Leah, and then he gives him uh, Rachel as well. So he has two wives, two concubines, and at this point in the story, he has 11 sons and one, one daughter. Um, he has served his uncle for a total of 20 years, and then he leaves his uncle, and then he goes and dwells in the land of, um, of, of his fathers. Okay, so let's get into this text. The text starts off in verse one, introducing us to the central character of the story. Her name is Dinah. She's the daughter of Leah. She's a silent character. You'll notice everyone else in the story speaks, but she doesn't speak. Um, The story is told from the vantage point of everyone else, but she's the central figure in the story. It's also important that she's called the daughter of Leah because Leah, you'll remember, is the unloved wife of Jacob. Jacob loves the other wife, Rachel. He loves her deeply. Her her children um, are favored is a favoritism towards his son, Joseph. So it's important that this text begins by calling her the daughter of Leah because the the writer is trying to tell us she's a child of the unloved wife. That's gonna be significant. So here's the situation. She goes out to see the women of the land. Their entire family has settled in this land. Uh, It might be a year or two that they've been here. Um, And Dinah, we know she has 11 brothers And no sisters have you ever got to a new place like you went away to school or you moved to a new house or new apartment and then you go out exploring to see what's out in the city Um, finding other people your your own age uh, making new friends I think that's what she's doing at this point likely she is about 12 or 13 years of age some scholars put her as young as 10 years of age, and some say that she's maybe as old as 16. I'm going to land at 12. I'll tell you where, where I get that from. Jacob stayed with Laban for a total of 20 years. Um, he marries both the sisters the seventh year, and they immediately start having children. And this girl, she's the seventh child of Leah. So if you say that all the kids were born one after the other, about a year apart, she is born the 14th year that they are with uh, Jacob's uncle, Jacob's uncle Laban. And so when they leave at the 20th year, she's about six years old. So between chapter 31, when they leave Laban, and chapter 34, there's several life events that have happened to Jacob and his family. He's wandered around. He's wrestled with an angel. He's met his brother um, Esau. Uh, he's came into the land of his father's. He's brought a plot of land from the Shechemites. And so I'm going to say if you take those five or six major life events and you say that they happened at about a year's span, um, I'm going to say it's about five or six years since they left Laban. And that would put her maybe 11 or 12 years old at this time. So her captor sees her also as a marriable young woman, so that affirms to me that she's around 12 or 13. I don't think it's been a long span of time that they've left Laban, so I wouldn't put her much older than that. Essentially, in our view, this is a child. Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, uh, he sees her and, there, and there's, there's four things that happen. He sees her, he seizes her, he sleeps with her, and he shames her. A big question that a lot of scholars has have is, is there a sexual assault that, that takes place? Some commentators, both Jewish and Christian, have tried to soften the details here. I think because they are uncomfortable that the biblical narrative would include such um, a graphic account. Instead, they um, regard it as a regretful promiscuity, a youthful indiscretion. Some have said that um, she was very curious and outgoing and worldly that she's tired of her overprotective of her overprotective brothers and her father she wants to be in um an independent woman biblically that doesn't make a lot of sense the text doesn't allow us to interpret like that we cannot reserve the right to change the details of scripture because scripture as it's written makes us uncomfortable the text doesn't say um that this young woman has done anything wrong or has any immoral um intentions. It says that she goes out to meet the women of the land. She's not looking to party. She's not looking to find a boyfriend. Her intentions are innocent and social and congenial as the text reveals. And the text tells us that she was victimized by Shechem because um, of the two words it says in verse, verse number two, it says that he seized her and that he humiliated her. Does that make her sound like like a willing participant? And so um, verse number two uh, at the end the english standard says he humiliated her the king james says that he he has defiled her new american standard says that he lay with her he lay with her by force this is essentially the nature of sexual assault it is to use sex to forcibly oppress another person it is to render another person weak and powerless it is a violation of another person at the core of their being it is to overpower their will and their choices to bring chaos upon their emotions, and to destroy their physical boundaries and violate the integrity of their body. This is how Shechem shames and humiliates her, by violating her at the core of her personhood. You know, sexual assault is the type of traumatic violation that changes someone at a fundamental level. People who have gone through it have recounted that even many decades later, they still find themselves subjugated to the effects of it. About a year ago, there was a story in the news of um, a sexual assault that outraged the entire nation because the man accused, um, he only ever took responsibility for drinking too much, never for the rape that he committed. Um, It's the story of a man named Brock Turner, if you remembered it. It happened in Palo Alto, California. He was convicted of three counts of sexual assault. The outrage of the story was that the lawyer for this man used the fact that he was a star athlete and a competitive swimmer as a defense and a reason why the judge should be lenient on him. For three counts of sexual assault, you know how much jail time he got? He got six months only. Not in prison, but in the county jail. And you know how much of that he served? He served three months. I want to read from the statement that was made to the the judge um, in court, in court by his victim. Here's a lengthy statement. If you want to look it up, it's called the uh, it's called the Brock Tur- Turner victim impact statement. There's you'll find it on Google. Um, it's it's a tough thing to read. It's not for the faint of heart. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs for you. She says nobody wins. We have all been devastated, we have all been trying to find some meaning in all this suffering. Your damage was concrete, stripped of degrees and titles and enrollment. My damage was internal, unseen, I carry it with me. You took away my worth, my privacy, my energy, my time, my safety, my intimacy, my confidence, my own voice, until today. My independence, natural joy, gentleness, and steady lifestyle I had been enjoying became distorted beyond recognition. I became closed off, angry, self-deprecating, tired, irritable, and empty. The isolation at times was unbearable. You cannot give me back the life I had before that night. I can't sleep alone at night without having a light on, like a five-year-old, because I have nightmares. I waited until the sun came up, and I felt safe enough... safe enough to sleep for three months i went to bed at six o'clock in the morning it's embarrassing how feeble i feel how timidly i move through life always guarded ready to defend myself ready to be angry it's not only our modern world that understands the chaos and the destruction that is visited upon a soul by sexual assault i believe that they understood this in the biblical times as well consider the story of abner and and his sister tamar In 2 Samuel 13, when he is about to assault her, she says to him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where can I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. So she says to him, You will ruin both of our lives. I'll never be rid of the shame that you will cause me. Same idea as in Genesis 34, he humiliated her. See, it's not a shame or a humiliation as in you do something bad and when you think about it, you feel regret for it. It's being forced to bear the shame that's caused by another person. Another person victimizes her and she's stuck with the dirtiness of it. That's what shame is. And verse three, We don't know why the change in tone, but all of a sudden Shechem starts being a different person. It says he spoke to her tenderly. He wants to marry her. We're not told why, but if I had to take a guess, here's what I would say. Uh, I think that the moment of lust and power has worn off for him. He has conquered, he's gotten what he wanted, and she's a crying, humiliated mess, and he has an appetite for the vulnerability that he sees. And here's what's so sinister about that is that If this is what's going on, it means that he violates her and then he comforts her. He plays both roles, the victimizer and the sympathizer. Incredibly sinister. So he wants to marry her and he makes that known to his dad. get to point number two, the deal. Verse number five, we meet Jacob in this story. The text now refers to Dinah as, as his daughter. But his behavior is curious to us because his daughter has been defiled or violated, and it says that he holds his peace because his sons were out in the field. There's no record of his anger, of his sadness. Also, notice that news travels fast in this town. See, they live in a town, they live near the town of Shechem, we're told in Genesis chapter 33, and presumably Hamor had started this town in honor of his son, and they sell Jacob and his family a plot of land. And so they're not out in the middle of nowhere. People have seen what's happened. People are aware of it. Shechem's own people. And news travels back to Jacob. And so Hamor comes to speak with Jacob. And his sons hear about the incident as well. And they come home, they come home too. It says in verse 7 that they were indignant and very angry because of this outrageous act. At the end of verse 7, it's interesting because it says that he's done this outrageous thing by lying with Jacob's daughter. See, the writer could have said that they're angry because of what he did to their sister, but he doesn't say that. He says they're angry because of what they did to their father's daughter. And I think what's going on here is the writer is contrasting Jacob's reaction with the reaction of his sons. Jacob is passive, he's peaceful, he's confused, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't feel the indignation and the anger that he should have felt. But his sons feel that anger as though they're taking on the role of the father. Notice until this point, everyone has failed this young woman. Shechem violates her. Hamor, who's the prince or the governor of the land, he doesn't rebuke his son, he doesn't arrest his son. Jacob is there just holding his peace. The people of the town know what's going on, and they don't come to her defense. They don't come to Hamor and say, hey, what what's going on? This is not acceptable. Everyone has failed Dinah until finally... Her brothers get home. They were angry at what happened to Jacob's daughter. It's like they're assuming the role of their father because he's not getting angry, so they're going to do it on his behalf. He's checked out mentally and emotionally. Hamor makes this proposal in verse 8. He says, my son's soul longs for your daughter. Please give her to be his wife. No apology, no repentance, no sense of my son screwed up. How do we make this right? But of course, he comes prepared to make a deal because no family is going to give their daughter to a rapist. So he proposes that they form an alliance. Verse 9, he says, make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. And then verse 11, Shechem starts to speak. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me a great bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So that's the offer, make an alliance with us. We can intermarry, we will be trade partners. Shechem says, name your dowry, I'll give you any amount for this woman to be my wife. See, they've essentially commodified this young woman. They're making her a bargaining chip in an alliance. They're trying to buy her hand in marriage, but neither of them speaks of the violation that has happened. In order to commit this kind of act and to shield oneself from the culpability of it, they have to dehumanize and objectify another person. They have to treat them like a commodity, not like a person. Let me say it again, sexual assault diminishes and destroys human personhood. I would urge you to be careful of any practice of sexuality which diminishes and destroys someone's personhood. This is why men and women, the usage of pornographic material is so deadly because it creates a scheme where the most intimate parts of another person can be consumed without having any regard for their humanity or their personhood. There's a couple of articles, if you talk to me later, I'll give you a copy of them in the back or I'll link them on my Facebook page and you could have access to them that deal with the prevalence of pornographic material in the lives of children. It discusses that young men as young as 12 and 13 are so addicted in some cases to pornographic material that it's like pornography is their education of sex, which has the effect that they dehumanize girls and women, imitating their ever progressive appetite for more aggressive pornographic material. They unwittingly gain an appetite for violence and sexuality. So that's the deal that's presented. They're commodifying this young woman. At the center of it is a person who has been victimized and she's now being transacted as though she's an object. Point number three, we get to the deception. So here's what the sons of Jacob will do. They tell them, verse 14, we cannot do this. There's, there's only one problem here, they say. You see, we're Hebrew. We practice the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant sign of the circumcision. So we can't give you our sister and practice intermarriage with a group who doesn't practice circumcision the way that we do but if you consent to this condition, then we will make a deal with you. Um, We'll be one people. And they say, but if you don't agree, well, we'll just take our daughter and be on our way. So they're referring to Dinah as their daughter again, because they're standing in the role of their father. And so that is found agreeable, surprisingly, by Hamor and Shechem. Verse 19 says, Shechem did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. So he's done what they asked, and now he has to convince his people to do the same. The verse tells us this one detail that he was the most honored of his father's house. He's the favorite son of his father. In fact, the city is named after him. And he's going to act as a spokesperson to convince the people of the city to follow his example and become circumcised. So father and son, they stand at the city gate, which is where you would transact your civic business. And they say in verse 21, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let them, and let us give them our daughters. So that sounds agreeable, right? Anyone who hears that is going to agree to it. And then it gives them the catch. Well, there's one little catch here. Only on this condition, verse 22, will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. And you know that's going to be a tough sell to these men who are adults already. They're not infants. And so he needs to pitch it to them and tell them what a good deal it is. He says in verse 23, Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. I want to point out to you the way that that this deal is progressing, they keep upping the stakes of this deal. They keep adding to it. They keep spinning it. Hamor comes to Jacob, and he says, I want your your daughter's hand in marriage for my son. So let's be in-laws. Then he says, let's intermarry. Let's trade with one another. Let's have an alliance. And then Jacob's son says, not only that, but let's be one people. Let's have a cultural unity. And then they present it to the townspeople as all their possessions will become ours. Let's have socialism. And so they, so they do that. The Shechemites all consent to being circumcised. Everyone who had gone about their business and came to the city gate, they consent. You have the ruler telling you to do something. His son has led by example, and they're telling you all the good reasons: intermarriage, trade. Think of the wealth that we're going to be that we're going to be getting. Remember, Jacob was a wealthy man by ancient standards. He has an enormous amount of flocks that he acquired because he was a master sheep breeder. So he's come into the land with great possession and great substance. He's a skilled shepherd, and expert in sheep breeding. Tons of possessions. All of this would have been notable as his family dwells among them. It's like when, um, when they tell the people, come on, let's do this, that they're really rich. It's a rich family. We're gonna form an alliance, with, it's like the dollar signs flash before their eyes and they're like, cha-ching, right? That's what they want. They want part of the wealth. They want, they want their substance. They want their animals. They want what they can get. And so they, they consent to this. So that's the deception. Final point, the destruction. Verse 25, the third day, the men are at home and still healing and in pain. And whereas this was a relatively relatively busy town where people were out and about, we know that people were out and about because people spread the news of, of the young woman's capture, Uh, People were coming and going at the city gate, as we've seen, Um, but at this time, it's not a bustling town. They're at home. They're recovering. They're resting. They're sore. So, finding an opportune time, Simeon and Levi, they come against the city and they kill all the men. A couple thoughts for you, Simeon and Levi are pretty young themselves. Don't forget that these are young men. Um, If you followed my math earlier about the age of their sister, if she's about 12, then they're about four or five years older than her. I would suggest that these young men are 16 and 17 years old only. Secondly, it's probably not a big city like New York or Woodside. It's a tribal town. It's only one tribal family among the larger group of people. at this point, Jacob's family itself consisted of maybe 20 people, plus maybe hired employees and some servants. Jacob's household, his estate, is maybe 30 or 40 people. And even if you imagine the tribe of Shechem is about, let's, let's say it's about 10 times as big, it's still only 300 or 400 people. So to go house to house, killing all the men and not getting caught, it's not a small task, but it's not an impossible one either. And they kill everyone, verse 26. They kill Hamor and Shechem with the sword. They rescue their sister. Notice she was being held at Shechem's house. I heard one pastor explain that the advantage of using using the circumcision is that it ensured that Shechem could not violate her again while they planned their rescue. All along this text, up until this point, I've been cheering for Simeon and for Levi. I'm on their side. I didn't get upset when they were angry. I didn't get upset when they made a false deal. But in the end here is where it really starts to go off the rails. They enter the town and they kill all the men. Not only that, but the rest of the sons of Jacob, they come and they plunder the city. They took all their possessions, their wealth, their livestock, their beasts of burden, they took everything. We're told later that they hamstrung the oxen as well, meaning they went and they struck the oxen at the back of their legs uh, with the sword, you know, leaving them for dead. The destruction that they visited upon this town, it's incomprehensible. And this is where I believe that justice has gone overboard. Shechem has committed this outrageous act and his father helps him to cover up the seriousness of his sin. Okay, if Simeon and Levi would come and, and they put them to the sword, I would take no issue with it. We would say, that's justice, their blood be upon their own head. But what gets me is the slaughter of all the men, right? Does that make you uncomfortable? Or am I the only one? It should make us uncomfortable. There had to be some men, yes, that were negligent and complicit in Shechem's actions, but certainly not all of them. See, their sister was violated, and justice must be done. But think of, think of, when they kill all the men, how many women are made into widows? How many children are made into orphans? Think about um, how many women and children now, having lost their husband or their father, they have to enter into, into a life of destitution because their property was also plundered. What if they're sold as slaves, right? They're not going to keep all the women and children. They're going to be sold as slaves, as the spoils of war, to other Canaanite, to other Canaanite tribes. And, and that's not good. Because think about the child abuse and the child rape and the abuse of women that will result as, as a result of their city and their town and their families being, being destroyed. See, this is not good. There's no heroes in this story, only victims. There's no virtue in this story, only shame. I want you to notice that everything um, Shechem hoped to get by this alliance, the exact opposite happens. They thought they would get trade and wealth and animals and intermarriage and prosperity and unity, but instead they get death and destruction. Their wives are taken away. Their children are taken away. All their animals and wealth is plundered. They are wiped out. And look at Jacob's reaction. See, this is the first time Jacob speaks in this text. We don't hear from Jacob earlier. Now he speaks. Verse 30, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me to stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Jacob says, your actions will make me reproachable to the other tribes in this promised land. They will view me as a threat. They will want to kill me. See, what he says is, I will be destroyed, both I and my household. And this should be so odd because the first time, this is the first time he speaks in this text and it's to rebuke his sons. And his concern, he says, is for his household, but where was his concern for his own daughter? Isn't she part of the household too? See, there's no heroes in this story. And then hear the response. They ask their father, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? He violates her. He humiliates her. He wants to buy her like an object. And you want us to allow that? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is, of course not. But it's said like an accusation after everything is said and done. Where was Jacob in all this? Where was his wisdom, his guidance, his fatherly leadership, his prayers, his voice, his anger? It's not there. And it's as though the brothers are lobbing this accusation against their father that you have let our sister be treated like a prostitute. And it ends there. Nobody wins. There's no hero. Everyone's sense of justice is perverse. Were Jacob and Esau wrong? I mean, were... um, Simeon and Levi wrong in what they did. I would say, yes, they were. Here's why. Because they went above and beyond um, in their pursuit of justice. Genesis 49, Jacob is pronouncing the blessings upon all his children. And I want you to hear at the end of his life what he says about this incident to Simeon and Levi. Genesis 49, verse number 5. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their council. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And so he rejects them from the blessing that they would have received. It's interesting to note that the first three sons of Jacob, they're all rejected from their blessing. Reuben, it says he went to his father's concubine. He was, he was cursed. Simeon and Levi are cursed. So sons one, two, and three are cursed. And the blessing, the birthright, the blessing of the firstborn, it goes to Judah. Judah was not the firstborn. Uh, Judah was, was fourth in line, and he was the son of the unloved wife. Judah is from where is the tribe from which our savior, Jesus Christ, will, will come. See, the, the three sons of Jacob are rejected, and the blessing goes to Judah. That's its place in history. It's a curious, it's a curious detail. Um, that we understand because we know that our savior, Jesus Christ, comes from the tribe of, of Judah. And with that, I want to spend the rest of our time encouraging you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at all these characters and everything awful about them, right? You have Shechem, this entitled, manipulating, sinister man. He victimizes and objectifies this young woman. He treats her like a prostitute. Like she can be violated and then paid off. And he presents himself as so noble. He says, I'm, I'm so in love with her, I just want to marry her. I'll, I'll give you anything. You have Hamor the father. This man is so clueless about the entitled and sinister young man that he's raising. His son commits grave sin, and he goes to bat for his son like everything is right and normal. It's a part of the culture. You have Jacob, another terrible father. Half his family is unfavored by him. The way Hamor, you see, jumps to advocate for his son, Jacob doesn't do that for his daughter. He holds his peace. He is passive. He is distant. He doesn't know what to do. He's more concerned about the world around him and what they're going to think of him than about his own daughter. Then you have Simeon and Levi. Their good desire for justice gets so clouded with anger and violence that they become the very same thing that they are fighting against. They commit murder and destruction and disregard the humanity and personhood of their victims, some of them who are surely innocent. They just want justice at any cost, including committing gross injustices. My friends, this is a small slice of the ugliness of humanity. This is a small look into you and I this morning, actually. And But the good news is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Christ came to save those who, whose deeds and character are horrifically ugly. He came to save those who are like Shechem, and Hamor, and Jacob, and Levi, and Simeon, and you, and I. Now I don't care if you're as negligent as Jacob or as violent as Jacob's sons or as wicked as Shechem this morning, or if there's darkness in your life and in your past that you have been able to hide from everyone. Nobody knows the depth of your heart except God Himself. I want to tell you that the gospel is for you. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And he is able to save sinners because he lived perfectly without sin. And then he died in our place. At the cross, God hated and despised and rejected Christ as he bore our sins. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. He has done all the work required to save sinners who come to him. You know there's no amount of sin that can prevent Christ from saving someone if they will truly repent and believe in him." The hymn writer Fanny Crosby wrote, "The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives." Think about that. The vilest offender. What is the vilest offense that you could think of? Is it rape? Is it abortion? Is it murder? Is it pornography? Is it homosexuality? Is it child abuse? Is it killing Christians for their faith? Christ can save the vilest offender. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, I am the chief. 2 Corinthians 5 21, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 8, one. there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Hebrews 7, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You know, the gospel teaches us that you can have the vilest offender, the most wretched sinner, and if they repent and believe on Jesus Christ, they will be forgiven and saved. Yet, if someone were were an offender and they were to cover their sin, excuse their sin, justify their sin, minimize their sin, they, they cannot be saved. And yet, you can have someone sitting here who says, well, I would never do something like that like Genesis 34. They may be the most moral and upright person, even religious, better than most people, but without Christ, they will be eternally lost and condemned. If you're a believer this morning, I want you to rejoice in what Christ has accomplished for us. I want you to consider the totality and the magnitude of his salvation. I want you to contemplate how dark is the condition of the world and how glorious is his light. I want to say one final word, um, I, w- I wanna speak about Dinah, the hidden, silent character around whom the story centers. I don't know everyone's story. Maybe the story of Dinah is your story. You've sat here, listening quietly. I don't need you to tell me, um, but I want, you to know, I want you to know four things. If this is you, there's someone in, in your life um, who has a parallel situation. Number one, know the love of god that if you are in christ there is nothing in your life that has been done to you that can be done to you imposed upon you a shame that you've had to bear that will compromise god's love for you and his commitment to save you number two know the justice of god while in this world as in this story true justice is often elusive but there comes a day when god will judge this world All sins will be accounted. All wrongs will be made right. We're a church that believes in the doctrine of eternal punishment. Some people don't like that doctrine. Um, In modernity, even evangelical Christians are questioning that doctrine. But we're a church that believes in the doctrine of hell. There's two ways sin can be paid for, either in hell forever or on the cross of Christ. And we cannot improve on that justice. In both cases, the justice of God is more dreadful than Simeon and Levi slaughtering a whole city. The justice of God is perfect. Number three, know the healing of God. Not only does Christ save us from our own sins, but he makes us whole from the sins that have been done against us. How does he do that? First of all, Christ identifies with the victims of sin because he himself is taken by wicked hands. He's falsely accused, arrested, assaulted, humiliated, and nailed to a cross. Secondly, ultimately, if you belong to Christ, the shame of victimization that may plague you and you think you'll never be free from Christ owns that shame. Scripture says he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Revelation says one day he will wipe away every tear. He is the God who is present in suffering. The psalmist says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Finally, number four, know our hope in God. I was reminded by this, uh, I was reminded of this by a dear friend of mine who shared his story, not, not of this type of situation, but of suffering that he had gone through regarding mental illness. And he's actually the same friend who challenged me to preach on this text. About about 10 years ago, he had gone through a mental breakdown and subsequent subsequent depression. Um, He thought his life as he knew it was over, but his loved ones reminded him that there is hope and that he could come out of his suffering better than he was before. And I want to tell you the same. There's hope. Because of Jesus Christ, you can come out of your suffering better than before. Maybe not in this life, even, but for sure when we're with Christ. Let's pray.